Good evening, everyone, and welcome to New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and it's always a thrill to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium that has the best seats in New York. Tonight's program, The Battles of Bull Run, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs, and we'd always like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his generous support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. Let's give Mr. Schwartz a big hand. Thank you. Now, he hasn't arrived yet, but I, I also want to recognize our vice chair, Rick Reese, our trustees, uh, Rick Reese, Suzanne Peck, Cy Sternberg, where are you, Cy Sternberg, and all the Chairman's Council members with us tonight for all their great work and support. Let's give them a big hand. <laughs> then we have two very special people in our audience, the great and famous historian, Ron Chernow. <laughs> and one of our national treasures, who we all adore and love, Judy Collins. <laughs> so thank you all for being here. This is, this is gonna be a fun and great night. So the program will last an hour, and boy, we're having fun here tonight talking, aren't we? <laughs> so the program will last an hour and include a question and answer session. If you're new to us, there, there, the Q&A the will be conducted via written questions on note cards. You should have received a note card and a pencil. And if you haven't, we have staff members circulating right now. Just raise your hand if you'd like a card. And they will be around again. And there will be a formal book signing following the program with copies of our speakers' books, which are available in our museum store on the 77th Street side. So we're thrilled to welcome back John Marzalek, the Giles Distinguished Professor of History Emeritus at Mississippi State University, the Executive Director and Managing Editor of the Ulysses S. Grant Association. Dr. Marzalek is the author of numerous acclaimed books, including his latest, The Best Writings of Ulysses S. Grant, the 2015 recipient of the Distinguished Writing Award. We're also so pleased to welcome Craig Simons, Professor Emeritus at the U.S. Naval Academy, where he taught for more than 30 years and served as History Department Chair. He is the author or editor of many books, including Joseph E. Johnston, A Civil War Biography, and the recipient of the 2009 Lincoln Prize. Our moderator for the evening is Harold Holzer, the Jonathan F. Fanton Director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter, it was easier saying the Met. <laughs> the easier author, for them too. <laughs> the author or editor of many books, he is the recipient of the Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize and the 2016 Goldsmith Book Prize at Harvard, Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. In 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President George Bush. So before we begin, I'd just like to ask, please turn off cell phones, beepers, and now please welcome our guests. Thank you. Thank you, Dale. 
Good evening. I'm just going to add two more quick introductions. Uh, another person that I wanted you all to meet, um, who's lucky enough to be married to Judy Collins, is also the designer of the Korean War Memorial in Washington, Lewis Nelson. And a wonderful historian of biblical and American eras. Uh, and those of you who are beginning to worry about how much money it will cost to buy kosher food during Passover, uh, our special guest is the man who is in charge of the kosher laws in this country, <laughs> Rabbi Menachem Ganak. <laughs> you can take it out on him later. <laughs> well, so it seems hard to believe that um, of all the programs we've done together, it seems, and we did go back on the record, it seems that as many battles as we've discussed, we've never really done a program entirely devoted to the first battle, the Battle of Bull Run. And um, it's high time, I think, <laughs> that, we, that we do so. Uh, Bull Run, or Manassas, as they called it on the Confederate side. As you probably all know, Confederate observers and historians tended to remember the battles by the name of the nearest town and the Union <clears throat> side by the nearest body of water. So the bull run is a, a stream, a run. Um, and where we couldn't have two better people to discuss it, both of them, both Craig and John, describe battles so vividly. And Craig, as, as Dale Gregory told us, is the biographer of one of the major protagonists in this story, Joe Johnston. Um, we told Ron Chernow before the program that is hot, as hard as we tried, we could not find a specific role for Ulysses S. Grant in Virginia in 1861, but maybe one will come up. I'm sure, John, you'll think of one. So let's start with the characters before we get to the action. Let's talk about the commanders-in-chief, um, their experience, their readiness. Um, and um, Craig, why don't you give us your assessment of Abraham Lincoln uh, as commander-in-chief at the eve of the first big battle, and then John will punt to you, and you do Jefferson Davis, his Confederate counterpart. Well, I think the first thing to be noted about uh, the Civil War is that nobody knew how to figure this thing out. This was a, 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 a war in which millions of soldiers fought and hundreds of thousands died, and the United States history up to this time had dealt with circumstances where a regiment was a pretty big body of soldiers. Uh, a brigade was almost unheard of. Uh, divisions didn't exist. Army corps didn't exist. And armies, nobody even knew what that was. So the difficulty for both of the commanders-in-chief was dealing with completely unprecedented circumstances. The professional soldiers to whom they would turn <clears throat> for uh, professional advice, for leadership on the battlefield, hopefully for success, we're used to dealing with uh, 100 men at a time, maybe two or 300 at most. And of course, no president had ever dealt with not only a war of this dimension, but a, a civil war. So everybody was kind of making it up as they went along, and particularly so at Bull Run, because it's the first one, uh, it's only a couple of months after uh, Lincoln takes the oath of office, um, and everybody's making it up as they go along. Lincoln's first instinct, I think, is a, is a correct one. He turns to the most senior professional soldier in the United States, and that's Winfield Scott. Winfield Scott was larger than life. 
literally as well as figuratively. He was an enormous man, six what, John? Six, six five. Six five, 300 and some odd pounds. We'll cut him some slack there. Uh, known as old fuss and feathers because he liked to kind of get dressed up a little bit. He was big on the parade ground. He was a real gourmand. It mattered to him a lot how his food was prepared. It had to be just so. So he was, but he was nevertheless the greatest military mind in the United States when the war broke out. And Lincoln turned to him and said, what should we do? And of course, he comes up with a plan subsequently called the Anaconda Plan, where there's a movement up and down the Mississippi River and a blockade along the coast. But one of the key elements is we have to tie down the enemy main battle force in Northern Virginia, or we won't be able to do these other things. So that's a key pivot. What's going to happen in Northern Virginia? And the problem that he had, and that Lincoln in particular had, was everybody was impatient to do it right now. Um, Horace Greeley, the famous newspaper editor about whom Harold knows more than just about anybody else, uh, used to run this banner across we'll, his we'll paper. Get, we're going to get to it. I'm going to show it. So that impatience was a, a big problem that Lincoln but, had to but deal talk with. Talk about before we pivot to Davis. Just in terms of experience and preparedness, that's what I'd love you to get at a little bit with Lincoln. Well, I'll do both Lincoln and Scott. Lincoln's military experience, he once famous, famously, rather tongue-in-cheek, said on the floor of the House of Representatives that I am a great military hero. I fought and came away to tell the story. I battled mosquitoes. He fought for a number of days in the Black Hawk War. He was actually elected commander of his company, which he said gave him more satisfaction than anything else in his life up to that moment. Um, but that was it. He had no professional training. He did go to the library and check out books. Now, I know that snicker, snicker, and my students at the <laughs> Naval Academy would say, well, you can't learn anything about war from reading books. <laughs> See, even John laughs at that one. Um, but he was serious about it, and, and he read as much as he possibly could. Now, Winfield Scott did have military experience well, in the Craig, field. just hold up on Scott, because we have a sure. picture of him, and we'll get to him later. I just want to do, let's just start with these guys. Okay. So, who wants to, you, you, John, you give us, and then we'll look at You're them. from Mississippi. You, I know right. all about, this is a fellow Mississippian, uh, Jefferson Davis. Um, it's a fascinating study, because when we think of this Civil War, and think in terms of who had the advantage, and certainly the Union side had tremendous advantages in, in any number of uh, materials and all sorts of other things. But when you look at these two men, Lincoln and Jeff Davis, you, there's something that's really very significant because Jefferson Davis has military experience. He's a graduate of the United States Military Academy, which they even <laughs> recognize once in a while in Annapolis. But in any case... He, uh, he also fights in the Mexican War, Mexican-American War, and he's one of the heroes of that war, what he does. So when he's asked to be president of the Confederate States, his immediate response is, well, I don't think so. I think I'd be better off being a general, leading the troops, because I have all this wonderful experience where Lincoln, as, as Craig pointed out, has no military experience to speak of, except for that short term in the, uh, the uh, Black Hawk War. But the thing about Lincoln is, and this I think is crucial, Lincoln knows that he doesn't know much military. And he does take out books out of the Library of Congress. 
And I do have to say that one of the books he takes out was written by a man named Henry W. Halleck, who I think some of you have, have heard of. Uh, and Halleck was considered, I think, the great mind uh, of, the, uh, of the military leaders of, of that period. So he took out books. Davis never worried about that. He already knew, he knew how to fight a war. So when Bull Run takes place, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but he can't even sit in his office. He can't stay there. He's got to go to the battlefield. So he right. gets on board his horse, and he goes to the battlefield. Well, he gets on board his train, as I will talk about later. Yeah, and he yeah. Goes, but in, he any, may- in, any, in any case, he, uh, he's there, and it, it doesn't do him a great deal of good, but we'll talk about that later on. So that's the extraordinary thing. The Confederate commander-in-chief, well-schooled, widely experienced, uh, thinks he could have had a future. What did he say? He would rather be a cavalry officer breaking squares than be president. Remember, too, he'd been secretary of war. That's, that's right. right. As too. well as a commander in the that's field. That's a good point. So. Yeah. So, And this is, this is the New York Tribune headline that Craig was alluding to. Uh, the nation's war cry, forward to Richmond. Later it was refined to on to Richmond. So this was the, I just did an excerpt of it, but this was at the top of page one of the most widely read newspaper, well, second most widely read newspaper in the United States every day. Not just once, every day. The push by the press, the pressure on Lincoln wanted a policy, said the New York Times, wanted a leader. Lincoln called them villainous editorials. So in this atmosphere, uh, and, and Craig described the, uh, the pressure that Scott is also exerting to do something in, in Northern Virginia. You've got the press um, agonizing and pushing as well. Just a word on Davis. I'm going to throw in my images. Davis is portrayed early in the war, not just as a president. Uh, you will not find an image of Abraham Lincoln in uniform in the whole lexicon of Lincoln iconography. But here, if you look at these guys, these are all the, the, the famous generals as they looked early in the war. The, the fellow to Davis's right with the comb over and the mustache is, does anybody recognize him? It's Robert E. Lee. Mary Lou recognized him, but that doesn't count. <laughs> she has to recognize him. So these are, and then later in the war, when they assume a more familiar look, there's Davis still in uniform. He is, that's the way he's portrayed. All right, now here is a man that Craig knows well. Before we go on to that, could you just flip it sure, back? I, I think. Just point yeah. out something. One more, uh, Harold. You notice the flag. Right. That's something that's, that's going to play a major role because if you look at that flag and you look at the United States flag, they're vaguely similar, particularly if it's in the middle of a battle and smoke and all that. And this is where we eventually get the so called Beauregard flag, uh, which is. Rather in the news even today. Yeah, the the cross. That's a good point. The early flag of the Confederacy. And there and there's the later flag. Yeah. Well, he looks pretty fussed up and feathery himself. Maybe not feathery, but dapper a, was a, dapper. Uh, a so word a lot of about, people use to describe old Joe. Craig wrote a terrific biography of Joe Johnson. So tell us about him and the moment that Lee. That, career that brings him to Well, Joe Johnson is a very controversial figure in the Civil War, and, and, and Bull Run in, in particular, but in the Civil War writ large, he and Robert E. Lee were the only two Virginians to graduate in the class of 1829. 
Now, I mean, there was 10 or so started out, but they, they survived it. They both graduated together. They were close friends. They knew each other. Each respected the other. Uh, but they were very different in character um, in, in a number of ways. But the thing to remember particularly about Joe Johnston is how prickly officers were, not just him, and he was, but of that entire generation in terms of their reputation, uh, what people thought of them, how they were portrayed in the press. This is going to matter to everybody who gets credit for these kinds of things. And we already heard that Jefferson Davis, who was a year behind both Robert E. Lee and Joe Johnston at West Point, um, was also a military, or at least conceived of himself as a military expert. And so there was a great deal of tension, but almost all of it was between Joe Johnson and Jefferson Davis. The key difference between the relationship between this man and Jefferson Davis was that they, they became rivals, and they became rivals because of what happened at Bull Run. And it affected the entire history of the Civil War, certainly the history of the Confederacy, uh, for the rest of the war. And what's interesting about it is to contrast that with Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee begins the war not as a field officer. He's not out in the field. He's not at Bull Run, never gets to Bull Run, because he's a desk jockey. He's back in Richmond, moving papers around. He's the military advisor to the president. So he's doing the kind of work mostly associated with an elevated clerk uh, when the war first begins. And he doesn't complain about it. He's happy doing it. Later on in the war, and we'll jump ahead just a bit here, when Joe Johnson is wounded, Robert E. Lee takes his place. And that's how he becomes the great commander of the Army of Northern Virginia and writes this amazing history of battlefield triumphs. Um, but this is the guy who's chosen to be the This is the guy chosen ahead of Robert E. Lee to command the Confederate Army in Virginia. He is, one, he is a full general, a four-star general. Uh, just a word or two about ranks. Can I do that? Sure. Now, is this a good time to do that? There had not been anybody to hold a rank beyond two stars in the United States in all of its history up to the Civil War. There had never been an admiral at all. None. <coughs> But the Civil War is so large and so cumbersome that new ranks have to be created. So instead of not, he had been a one-star general before the war. Now all of a sudden he's a four-star general. That becomes part of the controversy afterward. What is my actual rank? Who am I senior to? And give me the credit I deserve and so on. Uh, but this business about ranks. And everybody, captains became colonels. Majors became generals. And major generals became four-star general. So he's dealing with circumstances he's never handled before, but he is the senior Confederate officer, not just in Virginia, but in the whole Eastern theater when this campaign kicks off. So let's take a look at the other fellow who's important on the Confederate side, Pierre Gustave Toutain Beauregard. One of the great all-time names. It is a great name. <laughs> That's right. And... Um, they say that his hair turned progressively whiter during the war as the blockade made it harder and harder for European hair dye to get to the Confederacy. <laughs> but here he is. Tell us a little bit about Beauregard. John, well, before I, before I get into Beauregard, I wanted to just add to what uh, Craig was saying about, uh, about uh, Joe Johnston. I have to go back to Johnston. Yeah, okay. just go if you don't yeah. mind. 
That's the second time you've told me to go back. That's right. Well, I, I'm, I'm a little slow, so Historians I'm always behind. Back. Yeah, we, we look at the past, right? <laughs> but anyway, uh, the interesting, interesting thing about Joe Johnston is one of his best friends in the period after the Civil War, in the 1880s particularly, was a fellow by the name of William Tecumseh Sherman. They were very close friends. And you know why they were so close? Is because they both hated Jefferson Davis. That's true. And that made them good friends. Could it also be that when Johnston surrendered to Sherman, Sherman gave him terms that you wouldn't give? Uh, well, you know, but then you, you, know, you could argue about what Grant gave to Lee. No, you, I, I wouldn't. But anyway, well, let's, you wouldn't, but let's, right. let's stay in 1861 right. for as long as but, we can. Beauregard. No Beauregard. one wants to talk about Beauregard. Actually, his, his real name is Tutant Beauregard, Tutant Dash uh, Beauregard. And what's, what's interesting is he changed it to Beauregard because he got thinking that if he's going to be in the military and they do so many things you know, alphabetically, then T ah. is at the end. Very if he's Beauregard, then he's you know at the front at the front of the line. Does everyone realize that we have an Attorney General of the United States who's named after Beauregard and Jefferson Davis, Jeff Sessions, Beauregard Jefferson Sessions? This is the guy. This is the guy. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's yeah. very interesting. But in any case, uh, with uh, with Bo, we'll call him Beauregard. Beauregard has a reputation of. Not only, of course, coming up with a new kind of flag to avoid uh, difficulties on the battlefield, but he's, al he's also very interesting because he believes in very intricate maneuvers on the battlefield. Every one of his plans for every battle that he's involved with seems to include a very convoluted sort of plan to the point that it was too, so convoluted, nothing could be done. That the other soldiers, the other officers, had no idea what, what, he was, what he was doing. And Jeff Davis didn't particularly like him either because he didn't like that, uh, that whole business of these intricate plans. So whenever he could, Davis would move uh, uh, Beauregard away, put him someplace else so he wouldn't have any real authority. And the result is that Beauregard is a famous name in the Civil War, but he's not very famous for doing anything particularly important that switched the war in one right. way or another. But he is famous as we head into July as the Confederate commander who had taken Fort Sumter. So that's he's right. got a reputation that's surging that's, at its peak at this moment. That's right. right. It's er, er, early on. Uh, that's exactly right. And he is theoretically in command of the forces at First Bull Run. But... As uh, as uh, Craig. Uh, Craig, oh Craig, is that Over his here. name? Oh, okay. As Craig would uh, would uh, in, uh, would tell you, when Joe Johnston arrives on the battlefield, he has got the rank, but he lets Beauregard run the battle because he figures Beauregard has already been doing some things, and so he might just as well. Yeah, that may be the only so time in the history of the Civil War where, where uh, Joe Johnston let somebody else take the credit, wouldn't you say? We can get into that more later. We, okay. Right. So I'm just going to show a few more pictures. So there he is. There is old fuss and feathers. Yeah. Um, and you can see why. The epaulets, the, the belt, the sword, which, and six foot five. When he met Lincoln for the first time at, the, at Willard's Hotel 
1861, he had to be hoisted to a standing <laughs> position. He was wearing so much military <laughs> armor that he had to be hoisted up. Um, and as the nor northern editors are pressing for action, you know, get to Virginia, get over there and do something, the cartoonists are having a field day yep. with, with Winfield Scott. And this rather <laughs> smutty one is one I wanted to show you. The old general ready for a movement. And of course, he's sitting on like a porta potty there. <laughs> and um, he's got other Confederate leaders around him. Who's on the bottom of the potty? That's Beauregard that's, on the left. And but that's, that's Davis. That, that's da you Davis know, is in the porta potty. You know what? It almost looks like Andrew Jackson, though. That's well, what I was going to ask you. Well, presidents seem to like the Andrew Jackson look. That's a new thing. Uh, here they make, they make uh, Scott look pretty darn young. Flattering. Well, you know, it, it, it's easy to make fun of Scott because he was uh, long in the two, certainly from the 19th century. He was almost our age, fellas. That's how old he was. Um, and which was considered... He was Craig. He was considered older. old then. He was in his 70s. He was in his mid-70s. Yeah, Pretty old. For, pretty old. And, and older than us, just for the record. Speak for yourself. <laughs> in any case... Um, and he was overweight, and he couldn't really take the field, and even if you could find a horse that could carry him, which yeah, you right. probably could not. But that's key, right? He couldn't take the field. That could is not take the field. Not take the um, but I want to say a word in his defense, and, and that is to say that his campaign in Mexico, which John mentioned, was the, one of the most brilliant military campaigns ever. And I don't mean American military campaigns. I mean any military mm -hmm. campaign, whether you're talking about Wellington or Napoleon or anybody else. It was absolutely brilliant when that was when he was in his prime. And it was the same, more or less, the same mind that conducted that campaign that was still there. So he is, he is the right, right person to go for Lincoln to go to to say, what should we do? I but, think. but this is the guy who turns out to be the leader on the field. And right. I think both of you should give us your impressions of Irvin McDowell. He is the general who is going to face Beauregard and Johnston on the field. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about this fellow, because he has really become obscure. He's almost a footnote no. in Civil War. History. Yeah, Erwin McDowell is, is a professional soldier. He's been in the Army for a long time. He was in the Mexican-American War. He stays in the Army. A lot of people don't stay in the Army after the, after the war. But he is primarily a supply officer. He's not a field commander as such. And it's fascinating. He was on uh, Winfield Scott's staff, and some historians say that uh, Winfield Scott thought that he really should be commander. He had that much respect for him. But others say, no, 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 he, that Winfield Scott did not like the idea that, that Erwin McDowell would be the commander. And really, when you look at it, if you look at the, the, the um, tactics that Erwin McDowell used, they were pretty good. The flanking movement that he, uh, that he set up made sense, but one could argue that it made sense or would have made more sense later in the war when the soldiers would have been in better shape, had been better trained. They just ran out of steam, basically ran out of steam. And he was asking them to do something that only trained soldiers could, uh, uh, could accomplish. But in all fairness, Beauregard came up with basically the same plan. And when I was still teaching, I used to make a joke about, about this, but if you, look at, if you look at the Union Army here and the Confederate Army here, Erwin McDowell's plan was to make a giant envelopment 
against the Confederate left flank. Well, guess what Beauregard's plan was? To make a movement against the Union right flank. So if they both had gotten off on time, it would have been like a dog chasing its tail, <laughs> you know, round and round and round. It didn't happen. It, Erwin, but McDowell, to his credit, got off first and, and really was making progress until he ran out of steam, I think. You know, it, I'm reminded when you told me that he was protesting about the, uh, the lack of preparedness of his soldiers. Didn't Lincoln famously say to him when he ran out of patience, I know your soldiers are green, but so are theirs. So the They're all ones. green yeah. alike. But I think you can argue, in all fairness to him, it's a lot easier to be on a defensive than it is to be in the offensive. And he had to go on the offensive. And the Confederates basically had to dig in and face the charging uh, right. Union people. So I think, in all fairness, although we all know that Lincoln is always right, but I'm not here. Craig, tell us about the picnic aspect of Bull Run. Well, this got uh, blown out of proportion, I think, to a certain extent. But it, again, I think Irvin McDowell's problem here is that he's the first guy up to bat. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned at the very outset, nobody knows how this is going to work out. Nobody knows how to manage a field army of 35,000 men. There'd never been one that large before. And it's maybe just as well that he was a supply officer because logistics are to supply 35,000 men in the field, get them from Washington to Bull Run, keep them fed, set them up in a way that they can conduct this flank operation. All of that requires quite a bit of, of staff expertise. What's the distance, just so everyone in the audience knows, between Oh, Washington that is a good question. Manassas. What is it? It's not very 30 much. miles? I mean, yeah, it's, it's about 25, close. 30, I mean, you yeah. can hear the sound of the guns yeah. from the Capitol. So it's close. And because it's close, everybody's all excited. Oh, this is going to be the battle that's going to decide the war. We're, we're going to win this and send those Rebs yeah. fleeing, and this will be all over with. And so there were some who said, well, let's get a little closer. Let's see if we can kind of figure out what's going on. Now, this business of everybody, hundreds of carriages and picnic baskets and sitting up on the hill to watch the battle, that, that's a little overextended. But it is true, I think, that the civil population uh, thought that perhaps here's history happening on, our, happening on our doorstep. It's a chance to witness history. Let's go see. So there were some who came out expecting to witness uh these, these Rebs getting their just yeah. desserts and being driven southward in the restoration of the Union. I think, hurrah, hurrah. I think William Howard Russell of the London Times is probably the one we should blame for this notion that picnic baskets were upturned during the Union retreat. I'm not giving anything away by saying there was a retreat, I hope, because no. uh, we do know the Union lost this that. battle or will. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I, the, the, other per, the other person we should talk about briefly before we get into the actual battle, and, and both of you have alluded to the fact that Davis um, was there, came by train, got on a horse, got there late, but got terrific press and really annoyed Johnston and others. And I, I can tell you a lot of the culprits here, one of them was... Um, uh, a Georgia secessionist named Charles Jones, who writes from Richmond, what a world of heroism is that act of our worthy president leaving Richmond and in person <clears throat> leaving the center column of that fearful battlefield. Mrs. Davis bursts into her friend Mary Chesnut's room. If you're going to burst into someone's room, burst into the room of someone who's keeping a diary. That will be really <laughs> famous. And... Um, she says, 
to Mrs. Chesnut. A great battle has been fought. Jeff Davis led the center. Joe Johnston, the right wing. Beauregard, the left wing of the army. She didn't know that Mrs. Chesnut wrote, Mrs. Davis is greedy for military glory. <laughs> she wrote this <laughs> note. And Davis's own dispatches said that he was in the fray. So what did he do? When did he get there and what did he do? Um, actually... This, by the way, is called President Jefferson Davis at the uh, Battlefield uh, of Bull's Run. Yeah. Done by a northern printmaker, but in celebration of Davis's military hero- heroism. Well, I'm going to... I'm gonna, uh, Disagree with Harold, which I don't ever want to do because he knows. I didn't know I said anything except no, I read I, the report. But actually, Jeff Davis, I think, suffered, his reputation suffered more from the fact that he was there and being this so called great general that he didn't do what he had to do to win this great victory. Because one of the things that, that I find particularly fascinating is that both sides, the Union and Confederate side, went into this battle believing one, several things, but one thing being that it's only going to take one battle to win this war. It's that, that the whole concept of decisive battles is going to determine it. So it's not going to take three, four years. It'll be one of these, and we're going to get this one. If you're a unionist or if you're a confederate, you're going to take that position, that your side is going to win, and the reason they're going to win is because your side understands fighting better than the other side. So you might have Jeff Davis as president, but if he's there and he doesn't, after the battle, lead the troops to capture Washington, he's a loser. That's, an, that's a very interesting. That's an interesting point of view. Probably but, wrong. No, I no, don't know. Okay. But, but uh, he does get a lot of credit. He does get, yeah. And the one who really destroys the idea it's not for another seven or eight years, is Johnston. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, who writes in his memoirs, he arrived yeah, after yeah. the Union was that's in, right. the Union yep. Army was yep. retreating. Yep. Yep. Which is true. He he arrived once it was over. I mean, yeah. you can almost yeah. imagine him. You described it very, very well when we first saw his face sitting in the office in Richmond. He can't stand it. He's a military man. The battle's being fought. The battle that's going to decide the outcome of the war. He can't stand sitting there at his desk. So he jumps on the train. He gets up there. He gets this horse, rides to the battlefield, Sorry, hey, Mr. President, bad. you missed it, you know? Yeah. But he's not in uniform. Do we have any reason to no. believe no. it? No, he's not yeah. in uniform. No, he's he's not, not wearing uniform. No. Even to my the, knowledge, he doesn't wear a uniform at all. No. Anytime in this war. Even this comic print, which would take much too long to parse, um, sort of everyone is sort of looks foolish in this. <laughs> if you look at, do you see the number two in the upper left? If you get close on that, that's supposed to be Jefferson Davis. And he's identified as such in the caption. He's there in the plumed hat <clears throat> speaking about old fuss and, and feathers. Um, let's see where we go now. Oh, my oh favorite my thing. Everyone yeah. wants oh maps. Boy. About time we and, get to this. And, this is good stuff. This is... Yeah, see, there's a map fancier. So I'm totally lost. You guys tell me what's happening here. This is a campaign map, but here's the early morning okay. All right. Map. That one's a little too complex. Let's go back to the other one. Yeah. You want to go back? Um, yeah. All right. Um, the, the Battle of Bull Run is fought near and on the banks of Bull Run Creek, but the Confederates always called it Manassas, as Harold said. The Confederates tended to call battles after the nearest community. The Battle of Antietam is known in the south as Sharpsburg. The Battle of Stones River was known in the south as the Battle of Murfreesboro. Here they call it the Battle of Manassas. And what makes Manassas important is that it's the confluence 
not of rivers, because those rivers are not navigable. If they were navigable, the Navy would have come up there and cleaned this whole thing out right I mean, away. But that didn't happen. Or got defeated. I think they're on to you, Frank. They're on to you with the Navy. The yeah, Civil that's... War is two things. It's the first railroad war, and it's the first telegraph war. That's right. So Davis getting these reports from the field about what's happening by telegraph. He can't stand it. He jumps on the train and goes up there. Manassas is important because it's the confluence of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad from Washington down to Richmond with a branch off to Quiet Creek, and the Manassas Gap Railroad, which connects with the Shenandoah Valley. That one spot is where what counts for east and west in the Civil War, the west being the Shenandoah Valley, the east being the Tidewater area of Virginia. That's the point those railroads come together. Whoever holds that junction controls the east-west movement by rail, at least, of large numbers of troops and their supplies. So that's what's being defended. They're defending Manassas Junction, its actual name, on the banks of Bull Run Creek. Now, the difficulty here is that how do you guard both of these at the same time? Beauregard, we heard, is at Manassas. He's guarding that junction. Johnston, who's senior, he's off in the Shenandoah Valley. He's at Harper's Ferry. And you can see him up in the upper left-hand corner in red, Johnson, 12,000-some-odd troops, Beauregard down there at Manassas. Now, the plan for the Union is to beat Beauregard and get that rail junction and freeze Johnson in the valley. Don't let Johnson get down to Manassas to back him up or we won't, they'll have too many men. So the guy whose job that was, we haven't talked about yet, at the very top of the map, Robert Patterson. Now, Robert Patterson was another career officer, but he left the Army and done other things, came back in again. He's a little uncertain how this is supposed to work out. But Winfield Scott tells him, your job is to pressure Johnston. Go after him. Make it look like you're coming down the valley so that he stays where he is. And Patterson, quite frankly, just simply didn't do his job. He fainted into the valley, fired a few shots, went back again. Johnston said, this is bogus. This guy is not serious. And he moves his whole army half of the way by foot, but the rest of the way by the Manassas Gap Railroad <coughs> to get to Manassas in time so that the two Confederate armies are together and the two Union armies are still separate. And that strategically, in the broad view of things, is, is a critical difference in, in in this battle, and, and one of the main reasons why the South ended up winning it. But did they both? Didn't they both withhold ten thousand or more men? Well, I mean, they didn't it looks especially bad the number of men. Did. Moving troops around on a battlefield—it looks so great on maps. I would put maps like this up on the screen, and I'd say to my students, "What should you do?" And they'd get a, a red magic mark, and they, "Well, he should do this," you know. <laughs> but you can't just do this in real life. You have to send couriers out with orders. And they have to have supplies, and they have to have ammunition, and you have to go down this road, and it takes three hours, and then you bump into another troop going that way. And so there's confusion involved. It's not that either side said, let's hold men out of the battle. It's that when, where the two armies finally struck at that critical moment when the two sides came together, those were the ones that fought furiously, but elsewhere on the battlefield, there are troops that don't get into it at all. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about in the morning... It looks like a Union triumph, John, right? And, and then it, it turns, and of course, there's a, a legend of Thomas Jackson. Jackson, yeah. And Barnard B. says, there is Jackson standing yeah. like yeah, a no, stone no, don't, wall. Don't, don't get too far ahead. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's my best story. You gave it away. Yeah, oh, you took the, took the good line there. That's such, <laughs> I, that's that's my you, job. Yeah, I gotta I'll get in flank, with the line. The federal flanking there. movement, and then I'll do the okay. response. Yeah, basically. Are we, we doing we, the morning? What was that? Yeah, doing the morning. morning. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this is what what they basically comes down to is that Urban McDowell has got to move his Union troops from the Washington area to the area of Manassas, uh, Manassas Junction and going through a place called Centerville. Centerville is an important area because it's a good place to, to set up things, et cetera, et cetera. But McDowell does come up with the idea, comes up with the plan, which makes sense, actually, to have a feint on, I don't know if we can see it. I don't know. Well, you can see it here. But well, from Centerville right. toward the center of the map, yeah. that's almost horizontal, straight yeah. into... But I, I was going to say, the uh, uh, look, looking at the stone bridge, to feint across that area... And then sent Does a everyone giant see the stone bridge at the top there of the screen? Yeah. I, I can't hear Shank. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you see we're at the very top of Sudley Springs Ford. That's the idea. The Warrenton Pike is a key area. The idea is to make a gigantic flanking movement. And it's a long way, you know, as you look at it. And then to come straight wanna, down. Would you? This one has a pointer. If you'd like to use it. No, so that's okay. I'll, I'll, well, don't I'll ask me up. to do don't, it. It's very no. hard. But in any okay. case, there there are other battles that are taking, you know, skirmishes that are taking place in this in this very various areas. But the big thing is, if and not if, but it does happen that uh, uh, that Earl uh, McDowell is able to make that flanking movement. And he's able to start moving down, as you can see, that arrow. But then he runs out of space. He runs out of time. He runs out oh, of it's ability. Here. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you're, All right. You're, you're, Here we go. Here we go. Ah, oh, no, no, no. From Centerville, move toward the Stone Bridge and then make this big flanking movement all the way off the map. He's going clear off the map. <laughs> off the map, around this way, hit him in the flank, into the side. You know, if you're facing this way and they come in from this way, that's not a good thing. And it works. Now, John mentioned earlier that they're going to run out of steam. It, it works at first because he gets everybody up at 2 o'clock in the morning. He gets them on the road. They're on the road by 3, taking this 11-mile circuitous route, crosses the river, splashes. By the time they come in contact with the enemy, they've been up for 14, 15 hours. They've marched 12, 15 miles. It's hot. It's July. Uh, they're almost out of steam before the first shot is fired. But the flanking movement does work. They smack into the, uh, the flank of the Confederates who are defending Bull Run Creek here, right in front of Manassas Junction, which is down here. Here's where the Confederates are. They come around on the side and behind. Oh, my gosh, that's terrible. What are we going to do? Shanks Evans, this guy right here, actually uses for the first time in the history of organized warfare a semaphore flag signal to say, your left is turned. Look out, or words to that effect. And that's when, uh, finally, Joe Johnson says to Beauregard, he'd been letting Beauregard handle the tactics here because he'd been on the scene. They were mostly his troops. Johnson said, this is not going to work. I know you'd like to jump across the stream and, and to attack, but the enemy is up there, and that's where I'm going. And that's where he goes, up here. So the battle turns out to be not here, yeah. but up here. Right. And that's where the big fighting takes place then. And this, this thing you mentioned about uh, Stonewall Jackson, there, there's some debate about this, although it's, I guess, been 
First you said much. you were sorry that I took the line, and now you're going to now debunk I'm gonna, it. I'm going to debunk it. That's right. That's right. Because Barnard B., who is the, uh, the, the Confederate commander, the, the, uh, as, uh, as was pointed out, uh, Stonewall Jackson and his unit is just below the crest of the hill. And Barnard B. is on Henry Hill. And so he looks back, and you know, you've heard the story. There, there stands Jackson like a stone wall. You know, attach yourself to the, uh, to, the yeah, to the Virginians. But some other historians have said that really what Barnard B., when he looked over and he saw Stonewall Jackson there, he said, man alive. Jackson is standing there like a stone wall, meaning he's not moving. He should be moving right. up and supporting me. Yeah. So I just knows? don't think that that revisionism explains why that becomes his nickname, and it's a positive thing. That's like Craig's thing where he says it's either damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, or damn the torpedoes, right? It's, <laughs> <laughs> Sam stealing everyone's line. We'll today. never know. You'll never know. That's we'll never right. know. And we'll never know about this in particular yeah. because Bernard B. He dies. He's killed. Yeah. He, dies he dies on the field, how, so we don't know what he meant. How dare he do it? Because if it has just stayed alive and written something, we'd know it today. But your herald is focused in on the key piece of property right here. This, this piece of ground Henry called Henry Hill. Hill so-called because a widow named Judith Henry lived there in a little house right on top of the hill all by herself. So this is Henry Hill. Uh, and what happened is that uh, Jackson took up this defensive position with his four or five regiments right here. And these tired Federals, here they come onto the field. They've been marching all day. But they drive the Confederates in front of them until they get to Henry House Hill. And whether Jackson is standing like a stone wall well, in the good way or the bad way, bad there way. he is. There he is. You see and his name right, right there. Yeah, there's his name. You can't miss that. But the others all do rally behind the Virginians. Here's Stuart with the cavalry down right. here guarding the road. And here are the rest of them, Georgia, Virginia troops, manning the crest of Henry House Hill. And the Federals just smack into that line and hit it and hit it and hit it. And it lasts all morning long. Well, these guys are already tired. And now... You've got, and, and imagine what that black powder smoke is like. If any of yeah. you have ever fired a black powder rifle, it creates this big cloud of white smoke that's kind of acrid and it gets in your nose and it chokes you and it's July, it's hot, you can't breathe and you're breathing the smoke in. You haven't eaten anything since the day before. So both sides are kind of teetering on the brink here and, and the outcome hangs in the balance. Mm -hmm. And there. Well, another. Does but, that set you up for that? Harold? Yeah. Okay. But I was going to say the interesting, other interesting thing, you mentioned Judith Henry. She refuses to leave her house on Henry Hill. She's killed by a, by a shell that rattles around the house. So if you're in the middle of a battle, don't stay. Don't stay. Don't stay. No. And when it's all over, the Confederates do turn the tide, right? In the afternoon. Well, this is, remember, remember the, the map earlier where there were four armies and Johnston is coming. Well, he's coming piecemeal. He's coming by train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can only put so many people on a train at one time. You can't put 12,000 men on a train. The train won't move. That's Not going to move very fast anyway. It can only go about 10 miles an hour. Southern railroads are kind of rattledy clank. And they bring the first brigade down. Well, that's Jackson. That's why he's set up on the hill. And then the second one comes and they run up and they get next to Jackson. And then the third one but the 4th Brigade is still en route while all this is going on. It finally gets there late in the afternoon, 3.30, yep. yep. quarter 4 in the afternoon. 
And it's, it's Edmund Kirby Smith. And I don't know if he's on. Here he is, down here. He has come down to, to uh, Manassas Station and has marched up the road, and he passes Johnston's headquarters. He says, where do you want me? He said, well, I'd try to get around the corner here against these guys. And so just about the moment the, the Union is running out of steam, Kirby Smith smacks them in the flank, and they go, oh, it's too much. It's, it's just too much. And they, they flee. Now, they don't, they don't run. I know it's called bull run. <laughs> but they don't run at first. They fall back, shooting as they go. Unit cohesion is pretty much holding. Even for amateur soldiers, that's, that's pretty good. Um, but they are, now they have to retreat. Well, we, we just got here. We left all, all this again. And so they're retreating and so on. And, and the key moment is when an artillery shell hits the bridge. Yeah. Is it up, up here? Uh, let's see. No, it's further. It's further. There's another stream called Cub Run. Cub Run. Right yeah. here. And it hits the bridge on Cub Run. So while these guys are retreating, they can't get across that bridge. A wagon is turned over. So there the is bridge panic is at that point, right? And now there's panic. There's nowhere to go. The enemy is coming. We don't know what to do. And they try to cross the river in groups and dribs and drabs and unit cohesion dissolves. Well, Show some and images way. of the battle yeah, and, as but we go it, on. The other thing that, that's really fascinating is it, it, it brings up questions that are going to be asked by historians later on that you have the Union troops have a couple of professional army, regular army, they're called. And they're, they, they keep them together as a unit. And they're used as a rear guard here. And they uh, have play a major role in, uh, in keeping the Union troops from completely, uh, completely panicking. And then I have to mention a fellow named uh, William Tecumseh Sherman plays an important role when you get to Centerville to organize things so they don't run all the way into, uh, into Washington. So it's a complicated thing. Yeah. And, and this is where Jefferson Davis rides onto the field in the At midst this of moment. this. Yeah. And the problem, the, the criticism that he subsequently gets that John mentioned is the fact that he said, well, there's no Confederate pursuit. Yeah. If the Federal Army has been shattered, if they're running almost literally back towards Washington, exhausted, some have thrown their weapons away. I mean, it's, it's a mess. Why isn't there any pursuit? And, and at first, Jefferson Davis says, well, we should organize a pursuit. And he goes around to the various commanders. How many men can you get together for? Well, I don't know where my men are. Yeah. I haven't, they're too exhausted. I don't have any ammunition left. I'm exhausted. They don't have any water. I, I, can't be done. And so he, he starts to give orders for a pursuit and then comes to realize it, we just can't do it. We are as disorganized in yeah. victory as they were yeah. in defeat. And that's where the criticism comes up. Right. He arrives on the field after the battle has been won. He wants to organize a pursuit, and he can't do it. Now, at the time, this didn't seem huge, but it seems huger a year from now, two years from now, when the fortunes of the Confederacy begin to decline, and they look back and say, you know what? We had a moment. We had an opportunity. We could have won this thing mm -hmm. on that first day. If we'd only followed it up, we could have captured Washington. Yep. We'd have taken Lincoln a prisoner. This whole thing would be over with. Now, that's not, not only not likely, it's virtually right. impossible. But they hugged that idea to themselves. And the more they did, 
the more they blame Davis for not following but up. Let, and let that's me, where he got Let me add the, the, on the federal side, uh, again, probably a lot of uh, blame to William Howard Russell, who is the most famous war correspondent in the world at that time, writing for the London Times and getting picked up all over the world. And he says that there's a failure of command on the Union part and not controlling the retreat. Let me tell you a, a quick story before I, we begin taking questions. Uh, Henry Raymond of the New York Times, uh, the editor of the New York Times, decides to appoint himself the battlefield correspondent because he wants to be there when the war right. ends. ends. Yeah. So yeah. he goes to, right. he's got a runner, a bull runner, uh, <laughs> a, a guy on a horse who's going to carry the message back to Washington, and he writes a report at about noon. Yeah. Glorious victory by the Union, Confederates repulsed, uh, Union is safe, uh, war is over. I'm exaggerating, but something like that. No, the runner goes off. The story goes to Washington. It's, it's sent over the telegraph. And the New York Times, right? All the, that's the paper of record. They print the story. And that's what people read the next morning. So in, later in the afternoon, Raymond, being the editor of the New York Times, can't help noticing that soldiers are running away. So he <laughs> says, where's my runner? I had better follow up and write that we've lost this battle. Well, the runner has gone to Washington. He's not coming back. Raymond goes all the way back to Washington, retreating with the army. Mm -hmm. He gets to the telegraph office. It's July, as Craig said. These people are sweaty and hot. He says, here's my new report. The telegraph operator reads it and says, well, this isn't a very nice report. <laughs> You're saying terrible things. We've... And he says, yes, but I'm the editor of the New York Times. And the telegraph operator says, next. next. <laughs> Raymond next. has to go back to New York in a train, not for two more days. Yep. Did the readers the... of the New York Times <laughs> find out who won the war? And by the way, it's the beginning of the censorship of the military telegraph. So yep. all yep. sorts of things. Fake right. news. Good. Fake news. Fake news. Very good. So talk about stealing a punchline. Let me, let me get, we, we've run a little late, so let me ask a, um, a few, see if I can get some questions uh, in. What happened to McDowell after Bull Run? Ah, good question. Very good. Mc yeah. Good. I mean, well, McDowell stays around for a while. He's not shelved immediately. He will be eventually. He's kind of the, uh, he commands a division within the Army. Uh, he is the principal advisor to a guy named John Pope who fights... The second, second battle of run, run. That's right. Yep. And after that, he is pretty much shelved. Yeah, yeah. So here's, um, here's an interesting one. Can you describe what the city of Washington was like? What was the ambiance in Washington oh. at the time of this battle? Well, I, yeah, Washington, Washington was not the pleasantest place in the world to be. The streets were not, were not in very good shape. And paved. keep in mind, pardon me? Some of them weren't paved. Yeah, that's right. Right. But, but actually, you have a situation where Lincoln is calling people from all over the country, and they're coming to Washington to save Washington. And the result is there are, there are tents every place. There are, there are uh, 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 bakeries being set up to feed the troops, et cetera. It's a very confused, complicated place at that particular time. And, and the result is that people who see Washington at that time begin to wonder, well, maybe, maybe we weren't so smart in thinking that we could win this automatically, that we would win simply because we're in better shape than the Confederates, et cetera. But it, it just doesn't happen. And Bull Run, I think, is crucial 
to, to understanding this attitude that later develops that if only, if only the Confederates had gone in to Washington, as, uh, as uh, Craig pointed out, and captured Washington, it would have been all over. And that's what was supposed to happen. It didn't happen, and that's had to be, somebody's got to be blamed for that. And Jeff Davis and Joe well, I'm, Johnson. I'm going to come back to the Union side. Got, okay. there, is a, there are expectations that the Union oh, sure. is going to crush this force sure. and end this crazy revolution that's going on as right. well. So it's a disappointment on both ends. But Well, it's, it's a disappointment, but it's, it's also a, an idea that the Confederates develop that they won this so completely that if they'd only gone into Washington, that would have been the end of the war. Right. But a, a corrective, too, we all need to keep in mind, and that is because it was the first battle of a very big war, yeah. it seemed like an enormous confrontation right. yeah. in July of 1861. Laid against all the battles of the Civil War that stretched out over the next four years, it's barely a skirmish. Yeah, yeah. And not many casualties, then right? few hundred deaths. Well, its casualty seemed enormous at the right. time. Oh, yeah. But compared to Antietam, Gettysburg, right. Chickamauga, I mean... Let me get negligible. Let me, let me get to um, oh, and one thing we should I should like I would like to add about Washington, it's a slave city. It's yeah. a slave, slavery yeah. is legal in yeah. Washington. Yeah. That's right. It will be another yeah. year before slavery right. is banned from Washington. So it is a southern city. Southern That's city. the capital of the Union. That's right. It's not yet a war to disrupt slavery. It's a war to restore order. It's, well, it's would you look an at even thing to mention? You look at Washington even today, Virginia and Maryland. Sir, Practically, well, they surround it. And that was going right. on at that time, too. So here's a question. It's unsigned, but I think I recognize Ron Chernow's handwriting. Where, <laughs> where was Grant, <laughs> and what was his rank during the Battle of Bull Run? He, he wasn't anywhere near Bull right, Run. Right, but what was he doing? It's a oh, form. <laughs> Ron needs to know. <laughs> <laughs> Ron, we ought to ask Ron what he, what he knows. No, uh, Grant is in the West uh, during, during this time. He... That's where he, he develops his, his reputation. He, he starts out by being commander of an of a Illinois regiment that's famous for being a bunch of obstreperous people who are always getting in trouble. And Grant sets up some, um, some uh, discipline, and they become an effective uh, uh, fighting force. But he's not, he's not involved at all in, in the East at this. He doesn't come East. Three more years, right? Almost no, three more yeah, years. exactly, till 1864. And so, so you, but, but you have, while this is going on, Grant, nobody knows who Grant is. In fact, if you look at some of the picture, quote unquote, picture magazines of this period, the, 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 the print they show of Grant doesn't look anything like Grant. They because just pick, it's, pick, well, because in one case, it's not Grant. It's not Grant. No, they just pick, well, yeah. A guy named Grant. A guy named Grant. Well, they picked, they picked some guy that it's they true. thought, well, it fills he the page He was a beef up. contractor. Who was? The oh, this other guy, Grant. The other the guy Grant. The oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Just a yes. local butcher named Grant. <laughs> That's <laughs> this is, let me try to get one more in because it's such a good question because you brought up, both of you brought up the flag confusion. Yeah. Here's a really interesting question. How significant was the confusion created by the arrival of a Confederate company that wore blue? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is a perplexing... This was, can we go back to that map? I've got the thing, don't I? You no, I have it. Which, oh, good. Oh, go back it. to that you... map where we saw the, the, the last map that you had up there. Okay, that's a pretty good one, I think. Um, around in here, uh, before Kirby Smith arrives, uh, there was a, uh, 
Virginia unit, the 33rd Virginia, actually. <coughs> and in these days, every regiment was allowed to design their own uniforms. Yep. They had Zouave uniforms. You know what a Zouave? They had big baggy pantaloons and right. little it's jackets. It's like a foreign with legion. With a fez. Kind of a foreign legion. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but each regiment got to design their own uniforms. And these people had a kind of a, a sky blue uh, uniform, but it looked very much like a union uniform. It was in blue, and it wasn't intended to be deceptive. Everybody had a different uniform. And they came marching out of this tree line in this area here uh, to attack a union battery, not mm. shown on this, but the battery was trying to fire down the length yep. of the Confederate line. And when they marched out of the woods here, they thought, oh, well, here, here's a, a regiment in blue. They are our supports. And so the 33rd Virginia lined up, dress right dress and everything, fixed bayonets, and then charged and captured the guns. Turned the guns around, started shooting the other way. Well, it led to a lot of back and forth fighting, but that was part of this frenzy of fighting atop <clears throat> Henry House Hill. And up until that moment, the Union momentum had, had been pretty strong, and that kind of stopped the momentum and turned it into a, a, a stand and fight confrontation. So I think it was important, sure. uh, and it wasn't a deliberate deception, uh, like the yeah. flags were not a deliberate no. deception. They simply resembled one another. But it's 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 suggestive of the kind of confusion and uncertainty characteristic in the, the early, early battles to the of the early Civil War. Time. It's the not early time, it's not organized national. Still figuring it out. And I think the thing you said earlier too, you know, it's hard for us to imagine this, but what a battlefield was like with the kind of powder that they used. I mean, there's smoke right. every place, so it's very difficult to see. And so, they're either using musical instruments or drums, or in the case you pointed out, yeah. flags. Yeah. And these people are all green alike. Let me just end before, before we turn it back to Dale Gregory. I always like to try to do an appropriate quote from Lincoln to end. Unfortunately, this one is two weeks before the Battle of Bull Run. Yeah. I would like to believe he still believed it he after still the believes, disappointment. Yeah. This is his message to Congress as they came to Washington on July 4th for a special session to discuss appropriations for the war. And he said, our popular government has often been called an experiment. Two points in it our people have already settled, the successful establishing and the successful administering of it. One still remains, its successful maintenance against a formidable attempt to overthrow it. It is now for them to demonstrate to the world that those who can fairly carry an election can also suppress a rebellion, that ballots are the rightful and peaceful successors of bullets. Such will be a great lesson of peace, teaching men that what they cannot take by an election, neither can they take by war, teaching all the folly of being the beginners of a war. It would be a long time before that promise was kept, because as we said, this was just the beginning. And thank you for listening to The Beginning of Us. Well, Harold Holzer, Craig Marzalek. <laughs> no, no. I, people do that all the time. Yeah, we look so. John we Marzalek, look a lot. I actually We're twins separated at birth. Yes, that's right. I, and I I'm don't a better have looking twin, but that's another story. I it's good it to down. be HH Wait. sometimes. <laughs> John Marzalek. John Marzalek, Craig Simons. Thank you. This, this is getting better and better. Oh. <laughs> so thank you. They're coming back. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
everyone, please stay for the book signing. Thank you.